Turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 4. This great Christmas text, that is Exodus chapter 4. We'll get around to that, don't worry. I haven't finished unpacking my, my office yet. And um, by haven't finished unpacking my office yet, what I actually mean is I haven't started unpacking my office yet. Um, so I, I couldn't find the book uh, to, to pull the exact quote. But I have a book by Charles uh, Swindoll. And in it, he has a, a quote or kind of an account of, um, it's kind of a fictionalized account, of course, of one of Satan's demons coming to Satan and watching him Merry Christmas. And Satan grumbling back and saying, yes, and let's keep it, Mary, because if Christians ever get serious about it, we'll be in trouble. I know that I have probably picked on some things over the last couple of weeks um, that are near and dear to your heart, and I've not meant any offense by that. But I do think it is critically important that we recognize and understand that there is a gravity and a weight to the, what Christmas truly is. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. That is true. But His birth is unlike any other birth. And I don't mean just the circumstances surrounding it as, as great and as remarkable as they are from the shepherds who are abiding in their field, keeping watch of their flocks by night to uh, there being no room for him in the inn to all the things that led up to, to Bethlehem in the first place to the angel appearing to Mary and Mary's great song that we see recorded in the book of Luke to uh, her uh, uh, going and, and meeting and, and being with uh, her cousin Elizabeth and John the Baptist and how he left in the womb in the presence of the Son of God. And, and we can go on through all the accounts of the wise men coming and, and all of these different things. And it is the most remarkable birth that we could ever remark on. But it is not that that distinguishes it and sets it apart from every other birth. For you see, while Jesus indeed was born of a woman, it was God who arrived in the flesh. And so today is not merely the day that we recognize the birth of Jesus, but it is the day that we recognize the incarnation of God. And that is far, far, far more significant than just any old birthday. But that God took on flesh and He came as a man. He came as the man-child, as the lowliest of lowlies, as an infant lying in a manger. And so I just don't have a lot of time for, for, for notions that lighten that to any degree than the significance that God Himself took on flesh. And He did so for a purpose, a singular purpose, that He might bear the weight of the sins of all humanity upon His shoulders, that one day as He was born in a manger, He'd be nailed to a cross at Calvary, and having taken my sins and your sins upon Him, He would defeat them and win our victory, but not just win our victory over sins, but that three days later, He'd be resurrected on that great and glorious Sunday, and being resurrected all he won our victory over death as well that we have the promise and hope of eternal life with him do you see how significant christmas is 
I just won't budge on these things. <laughs> now listen, I, I people can probably call me a hypocrite because I, I, I love all the other trappings and, and, and excitement that comes with Christmas. It's a lot of fun. You know, Wednesday night, I, I took the three kids, just myself, to the zoo to go do the Christmas stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm in favor of those things. But listen, we must rightly not just understand what Christmas is about. And I think we, we do a fair job of, of understanding that. I, I hear a lot and see a lot of people saying Jesus is the reason for the season and, and all of those, these sorts of things, and that's great. But there's a difference in acknowledging and understanding the purpose of, of, of Christmas and the, the reason for it, and actually dedicating and giving ourselves to the worship of this Son of God who came. I'll just say it this way. If your Christmas is lacking worship, you're doing it wrong. If your Christmas is lacking worship, you're doing it wrong. That's why I'm so excited about the fact that today, Christmas falls on a Sunday. That we get to come in and worship together. I'm, I'm excited to preach. Do you know preaching is kind of the, the, the foremost way that God has gifted me to worship? Me preaching is my worship to the Lord. Your listening to preaching is a way in which you worship the Lord. So even now, we get to worship this Savior. And what a tremendous privilege and opportunity it is that we have in front of us. And so, um, we might get into some more of that, but I just wanted to set that in clear understanding and acknowledgement of the significance of this day. Of the incarnation of God Himself in the flesh. I wasn't there when Jesus was born. But I know Him. And by faith I have seen Him. And I've walked with Him a little bit. And I understand a few things about Him. What I know is this. Is that all reverence and all esteem and all glory is due Him and Him alone. And so today I pray that God would set us at liberty to worship Him. With that, let's, let's read the text. Exodus chapter 4, I just want to read three verses, beginning at verse 21. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, go behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. We'll stop right there. You're probably uh, somewhat at least familiar with the uh, Exodus account, with the Exodus of the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. There's uh, been great movies made about it, and uh, certainly we see those talked about a lot in the spring around Easter, and uh, those get on TV with uh, the, the uh, Ten Commandments and all of those things. But uh, when, when we think about the, the Exodus, we know of all the, the miracles that God wrought, of the plagues that were brought upon uh, Egypt, 
Egypt and many people have considered and noted how Pharaoh hardened his heart and at other times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see all the inner workings of what's going on in the Exodus account and it is altogether wonderful and miraculous and worthy of our study and worthy of our time to understand it. And I don't want to go in depth into that today just for the sake of time, but what I do want to consider is some of the language that's being used here as we see God commissioning Moses and commissioning Aaron to lead his people out of slavery. And so we know well how uh, Moses is told to go before Pharaoh and to tell him to let his people go, let God's people go. And uh, you probably have sung songs about that and um, all of those sorts of things about uh, Moses appearing before Pharaoh telling him to let his people go. There's a couple of things here in this language, though, that I want to call your attention to. First, we see in verse 22 that what is being commanded or instructed of Moses and of Aaron when standing before Pharaoh is for him, to, to, to Moses, to tell Pharaoh that the Lord has said this, that Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Now, this statement is remarkable. For we see from the whole lineage of, of Israel up until this time, we know how Abraham had walked with God. We know of uh, the devotion of his sons and of Isaac and of Jacob. We know how God wrought a miracle in preserving Israel and Joseph being taken up into Egypt and arising in the ranks that his brothers would come during the famine and be fed there. We, we know all of that. But this here is the first time that we see Israel noted as God's son. We see that Abraham was a friend of God. We see all the, the, the ways in which God was with Israel all this time. But now, for the first time, God declares, Israel is my son. I want you to consider for a moment how long Israel had been in bondage in Egypt and how long they had uh, endured underneath the suffering and oppression of, of Pharaoh. And now, as they're going to be led out of bondage, we hear God tell them that you are my son. Wouldn't that be of, a, of an encouragement to their hearts and uplifting to them to consider that all this time God has not forgotten them but that instead He has seen them as His beloved Son, even His firstborn Son. And so we see God having preserved them and having allowed them even to suffer, but that, that He might deliver them by the power of His hand. And I just want you to kind of put a note there. When God calls Israel His Son. And then in verse 23, I want you to see a couple of other things. That there was a purpose when God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. It wasn't just to let his people go and that they'd be free and, and go do their own thing. But that there was a purpose for which God told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Brother Corey, a couple of weeks ago, had texted me, and I've been studying this for a while. I didn't know how God was going to work it all out in this way, but uh, Brother Corey had texted me late one night and said, uh, I had a question about the Exodus. He was reading it to his boys and I had a question about it, and it just so happened that I've been looking at this. And what did you see here that God has, has told Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, that they may go and serve him in the wilderness? 
They were being purchased, being redeemed, being bought out of slavery, delivered out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, that they might go and serve their God. If you've been purchased, if you've been redeemed and pardoned and set free by the salvation that the Lord has wrought in your heart, make no mistake that you likewise have been redeemed that you may go and serve the Lord. I think sometimes we lose this in this passage because there's so much here for us to, 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 to see and to understand as it relates to the Exodus. But there is a purpose for God's redeeming plan. It is that He might have a people who would serve Him. Let me note this too, just real quick. The people that were redeemed by God, the people that were delivered out of Egypt by God, they were His children. There was the nation of Israel was His son. We see that language used here. But this was a, a group of millions of people. I've seen different estimates, somewhere between 1.6 and 2.2, 2.4. I'll just call it 2 million to, to, to round it out. A big nation had grown in Egypt. <laughs> Think about that just for a second. This was a people that was taken in bondage. And there tends to be a trend among people that are taken in bondage. They don't grow in number. But here we see God had miraculously preserved His nation, preserved His people, preserved His Son. But not only so, but all the while He was making good on the promise He had given to Abraham that His seed would be as the sands on the shore and as the stars in heaven. That this people would begin to grow and, and, and to increase. And so this is not just some small group of people that we're talking about. And with that, there were believers among them and there were non-believers. But we see the effect of God leading them out of bondage. Now, I say that to say this. We are diligent as a church to make sure that we have a redeemed membership. What's that mean? If you want to unite with Faith Church, we require that you present evidence of your salvation. And what we mean by that is that you tell us about when God saved you. And if you're not saved, you have no place and no part of the Lord's church. The Lord's church is exclusively for the redeemed. And that being the case then, I think sometimes what we get all worried about is like we heard Brother Nick mentioning with Josh, and we have people that uh, come to the realization that they were actually lost all the while. We get real worried about that as a church. Let me say this. God is with His people. And He knows and He recognizes that even amongst the good grain, there comes up and there pops up amongst that good grain that has been planted, those wheat or those tares, as we see the New Testament call it. And God will take care of all of that. So let's be diligent instead, my friends, to see that we as the people of God are diligent in how we serve Him and how we follow after Him, continuing to do our part to be good fruit inspectors. But my friends, know this, that God will be the one who separates the wheat from the tares. What's that mean to you individually? It means that you need to make your calling and your election sure. You need to know if you are truly saved or not. I'll tell you this. I'll tell my wife all about this this morning. I got pretty fired up around about 2 a.m. last night. 
and I got done everything, and I had finally kind of put a wrap to, to everything, and I, I was turned on the TV just to kind of fall asleep too, and turned on a preacher. Uh, I don't listen to what this man has to say for a while. And he got to talking about people who believe in a no-so salvation. And he was kind of mocking the idea that you can know that you know that you know that you're saved. I don't know if you know this or not, but that is a, a principle of Baptist doctrine. That you know for sure that you're saved. And I was kind of wondering, why is this man picking on this so hard? And he, he gave it away a little bit later when he started talking about making a decision for the Lord. Well, when it's left in your hands as to whether or not you would go to heaven, then truly you will not know that you know that you know. For how can you? Because we make decisions all the time and change our minds, don't we? But when God does a work in the heart of a sinner in which they pass from death unto life, when they are taken miraculously from the darkness of their sins into the miraculous and wonderful light of Jesus Christ, when they are changed and converted of their very nature, going from a goat to a sheep, behold, the only realization you can have is that you know that you know that you know. And so I'll stand on that. And if they want to pick on us, they can pick on us all they want. I believe in a no-so salvation. And you know so. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you this. I didn't mean to get off on all this this morning, but I'll tell you this. That I believe one of the best ways when you see a lost sinner come to repentance and, and they tell us they're saved, one of the best things I try to do is talk them out of it. Because if you've truly been saved by God's grace, you can't be convinced otherwise. You couldn't talk me out of my salvation. Why? Because this is an experience me and God had. No one else. I'm not reliant upon anybody else. I am trusting wholly unto the Lord. I could say more about that, but I don't want to get in just picking back on them as they picked on us, but that's all right. But I want to continue here looking at this Exodus account. I just want to see one, show us one more, one more thing. He says, and if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. We know the account of what would happen as the tenth plague would fall upon them and the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. We know how all that was wrought. But he said, if thou refuse to let him go. There is this tendency amongst the world today, in which we see around us those who are considering things of the Lord, they consider churchianity, they consider all that this is about, and what ultimately they are led to do is to refuse it on its surface. And a lot of times the reason why they refuse it on its surface is because we, as a result of all the different types and, and ways in which Christianity is positioned, they can't make heads and tails of it. And so as a result, all they're left to do is say, I don't know what's true and what's false, and so I'm going to refuse it altogether. And I want you to know I have a sympathy for people that are left to that conclusion. Satan has done a very good job in, in taking and manipulating what is true and sound doctrine and, and giving it the appearance as though it is good and it has been wrought and messed up in all sorts of different ways. And Christianity has become this great big umbrella term, right? 
I mean, you think about all the different uh, denominations, and I'm not a huge fan of that word, but you just think about that for a second, of all the different denominations that call themselves Christians, no wonder people get really confused by it all. So what then is our call? What then is our purpose? If you read and you study the dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh, you'll notice that it's never a very complex dialogue. But instead, it is that Moses consistently declared to Pharaoh who the God of Israel is. Who our God is. And so then is our need to go to those who are lost and are confused and are skeptical, who are gainsayers. It is to plainly declare who our God is. And so I want to ask you a question. How many of you today could very simply tell me the gospel? One minute, two minutes, two, three sentences Tell someone the gospel. I want to challenge you. Not only is this a, the, the, the Christmas service, but this is also our last service of, of 2022. And so I want to challenge you as we think ahead to next year to consider how it is that we can take the gospel to people in ways that is simple and clear that the love of God would shine through it. Not that we're trying to win arguments, but that we're trying to win souls. And there is such a difference there. I've seen a lot of good people, a lot of well-studied people set out to try to win debates and win arguments. And they will walk away feeling as though they have succeeded, but wouldn't you know they've lost that soul? We've been called to be soul winners for Jesus Christ. To tell others about this man, Jesus, who came and took on flesh and bore our sins, who died at Calvary, but was resurrected the third day, winning for us victory over life, that we can have an eternity in heaven, that we could uh, shun hell as a result of this privilege of grace, this, this opportunity, privilege of grace, this doesn't even sound right, as a result of this grace and this mercy that the Lord has won for us or wrought for us, that our minds would be called towards people. People will have hard hearts. Your family members will have hard hearts. But don't be discouraged. God has miracles that He can work. So I want to encourage you to consider those that are lost in Egypt. For you see, there's a lot of times when we see in the Scriptures that Egypt against Jerusalem or Egypt against Israel is kind of used as a way of, of separating those who are lost versus those who are God's people. And there are people who are in deep, dark places in Egypt. And we have been called to tell them the glorious hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has a son that he has called out of Egypt. Turn over with me to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. just want to read one verse here in Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. 
It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. This text here in the book of Hosea, it is about Israel. In fact, we see the context before and the context after. If you want to spend some time studying it on your own, you'll see that the context is about Israel. We saw for the first time as we looked over the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus how a God had called Israel his son. And we see that same vocabulary here. It's not the only place we see that vocabulary. In fact, if you go over and look in the book of Numbers, we see in back-to-back chapters the same language being used to describe Israel. And in both of those places over the book of Numbers, the same thing is true. The context there makes it clear that this is all about Israel. That God had a beloved son, Israel, this nation, this tribe of people that he loved and he had not forgotten as they were in their bondage in Egypt, but had remembered them and had redeemed them and had called them, as we see here in the book of Hosea, out of Egypt. But it wasn't just this nation that was called out of Egypt. But what we would actually see is that, I believe C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, that as, as Israel was the shell, that there was a seed in this people. And we would see that, right? We see all the great patriarchs that would continue after the lineage of Israel. And we can study and look at all the things that transpired after uh, Israel was was to, uh, was redeemed or delivered out of bondage in Egypt. And we see how they wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years before coming into the promised land. And, and we see all of that. And we know all of that. But that little verse in Hosea chapter 11 has even more significance than that. I want you to consider for a moment how long God's people had only the Old Testament. In fact, we know during Jesus' day that the New Testament hadn't been written yet, the Gospels hadn't been written yet. All that they had to rely upon was the Old Testament. All they had was the law, and they had the prophets, and they had uh, the Psalms that their uh, father David had had recorded. We see uh, all the Proverbs of Solomon. They, They had those things, but all they had those things with was the context in which they had been given until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, He brought a greater wisdom and He brought a greater understanding of those Scriptures. So much so that if you'll read with me here in the book of Matthew in the second chapter, I told you this was a Christmas message. We're getting to it. In Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, read with me. It says, When they were departed, remember last week we talked about the wise men. It says, When the wise men departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into where? Into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. In verse 15, he said, And it was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. There was a seed in this child Israel that God loved. 
That was no doubt why God had such tender affection towards Israel. Because God had designed all the while that out of Israel would be the lineage of His only begotten Son. That in Israel will be found the seed of the God-man. That in Israel will be found the seed of Jesus Christ. And for hundreds of years, all these saints of, of Israel, they had the Old Testament and they had the prophecies and they only understood them within the context of Israel. Until Jesus came and an enlightenment came and a wisdom came. And now Matthew. What do we know about Matthew. What we know about his gospel in particular, that he wrote it and he directed it towards Jews. That he himself was a, well, it was a Jewish lineage. And so he wrote that they might understand Jesus from the standpoint and view of who? Of Israel. And so suddenly he said, you remember that little verse over in Hosea chapter 11? It wasn't just talking about the nation of Israel. It was talking about the Son of God. That out of Egypt, my son would be called. Now, what's that got to do with us today? Why is this such an important thing for us to remember and understand at Christmas? I, I, I don't have time to get into the depths of it, but there is still an Israel today whom God loves. And it's not a nation state over in the Middle East. In fact, you won't find it on a map. But there is a spiritual Israel whom God loves. There is a people today whom God loves who remain after that same seed. That all those that come to believe, not only would they be counted as sons and daughters having received this adoption, but having received this adoption as sons and daughters, that they would be co-inheritors with this same son who was called out of Egypt. Isn't that cool? I, I know there's a little bit of depth here that we're trying to get to, but I want you to see this. That not only do we see in Jesus Christ this man-child, this God-child, the Son of God, but we see also the preservation that it took place all those years ago when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and how they were redeemed and miraculously purchased and pardoned and delivered out of that slavery and how they were led to a promised land. But in that same Israel was the seed of the Son of God, the one who would win a victory for all who would come to believe, the one who would redeem us and deliver us that we too might be led to a promised land. Are you getting this? We have for us a hope and that Jesus, when He was born, Jesus, when He was threatened, even as the wise men came and, uh, and revealed what they had heard of Herod and all these things that were revealed to Joseph in this dream, behold, God was preserving for us deliverance. He was preserving for us redemption. He was preserving for us a promised land. Out of Egypt... I have called my son. There's something special about when we see this language used in the Scriptures of sons and daughters. I'm about done. But what we would see in the Scriptures when it talks about us as children is that during biblical times there was special consideration regarding children. 
In fact, we, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about how the Bible views children and how it was a, something of a semblance of strength of a family or of a man that he would have lots of children. We see the psalmist who remarks that they are as arrows in the hands of a warrior who would release them. And what we can look, we can reflect upon all that is reserved. We know the accounts of the firstborn. We can go all the way back to Jacob and Esau and how Esau, how they had fought or how there was the, the uh, trouble regarding their, their birthrights, regarding the birthright for the firstborn. We see Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Let me say this real quick. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't expect to preach so much doctrine today. But I want you to know that part that says only begotten, we can't leave that out. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. There have been many who have raised up who have professed to be Christ or to be a Messiah. There have been many who have been raised up to somehow try to esteem as though they were have been brought to, uh, as the begotten child of God. But Jesus alone is the only begotten Son of the Father. And being the only begotten Son, and He has rightful place as the heir of God. But read with me in the book of Romans. Chapter 8, we'll try to close. Verse 14 says, For all, I'm reading from the NASB, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery or a spirit of, spirit of bondage leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, let me stop just right there. We're going to pick the, the Scripture back up in just a second. Do you note the, the degree of this adoption? This is not an adoption that is just a legal one in which we will be legally recognized as, as children or as dependents of another. But this adoption was one with which we see intimacy, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That Greek word, that word where we see Abba, kind of what we would recognize as Daddy. That there would be such an intimacy with it where we would call upon the Lord with an intimacy of a child and his father. If, if you're a father, you know the special joy that comes with your children calling you Daddy. You know, when your children grow up, they stop saying that. I don't think I've called my dad, daddy in years. Right? But there's a special joy that comes with that because it's a special recognition of the affection of a small child with the love and reverence they have for their father. And we're recognized here as having that same relationship with God. It gets better. It says the Spirit, verse 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. There are some people who have taken this verse out of context and think that it means that our spirit bears witness with each other's spirits. We can talk about that. But the, the, the Scripture here, what it rightly is saying is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirits, affirming in us that we are the children of God. You know that no-so salvation I talked about a little bit earlier? Here it is. That God's Spirit Himself is the one who reveals the heart of one who is lost that they've been redeemed, that they've been saved, that they've been changed. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so that's what we see here, that we've received this spirit of adoption, that the Spirit itself is the one who has uh, testified with our spirits, who's witnessed with our spirit, who's revealed it to us. And then verse 17, and if children, heirs, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, my firstborn, the one who has rightful place in my inheritance. But now, we who are once lost, we who weren't even of the lineage of Israel, we who are Gentiles by our birth, behold, we likewise have been grafted in. We too have received this spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba Father, where we have the same, listen to this, where we have the same intimacy with God that Jesus did. Isn't that incredible? I'm so undeserving of that. We're co-heirs with Him. I guess one reason why Christmas has such a special place of reverence in my heart that not only is it the birth and the celebration of the arrival of my Savior, of the arrival of my God who took on flesh, but you see, it is the arrival of my older brother. <laughs> the one in whom I have shared this inheritance but the one in whom my sharing of this inheritance is due to. That He won my pardon. That He won my redemption. That He was the one who brought to me that deliverance out of Egypt whereby God has called His Son out of Egypt. For a long time, that Scripture had escaped me in the account of the birth of Jesus. It kind of gets overlooked. We kind of hurry from it right over into the life of Jesus. But make no mistake, when Matthew recorded those words and he said, as was prophesied by the prophet, that out of Egypt I have called my son, all of Israel would have stood in observance and knowing that that Israel that God had redeemed is now the Redeemer. <laughs> that behold, we have redemption through the Son of God. And we likewise then are counted as sons and daughters. Christmas is a happy day indeed, isn't it? But it's not just the birth of our Lord. Though it was, it is the incarnation of our God. And I praise Him for coming. May God bless you. Something on your heart.